We are here at the press conference where Luke Melhauser and Alonzo Fife will address questions concerning their first four episodes of Morality in the Real World. We expect them to make an opening statement and then take questions from the studio audience. They are approaching the microphone now. Here's Alonzo. Hello, thank you all for coming. Before we start taking questions, I have a brief statement I'd like to make. In terms of marketing desirism, it probably wasn't the wisest step that Luke and I could make to tie desirism to atheism. There's no doubt that we live in a highly prejudiced society where linking anything to atheism is guaranteed to cause a lot of people to close their minds to those ideas immediately and to find twisted and distorted interpretations that are easy to attack. And it wasn't necessary. There's nothing strictly incoherent if somebody believes that there is a God that created the universe and God created a universe in which the claims that are made by desirism are true. Desirism is not built on the assumption that no God exists, though it's certainly compatible with that view. For my part, I link atheism and desirism precisely because of this prejudice. One way to fight widespread bigotry that relates atheism to immorality is by explicitly talking about atheism and morality. I don't know if Luke has anything to add to that. Nope, but let me just say that if you left a question on one of the earlier episodes and we don't answer it here, it's probably because we already have another episode planned in the future where we're going to address those issues. But anyway, let's look at the first question. Our first comment was posted on the webpage for episode 3. A reader going by the name Yair said this podcast is, quote, all well and good, but man, is this way of presentation slow. <laughs> Do you care to comment on that? Sure. Uh, we're doing something here that hasn't been done before with desirism, which is to present the theory systematically. Alonzo has presented a lot of pieces of the theory in his blog and other writings, but we haven't seen what the theory looks like from the ground up. So that's what we're doing. Besides, I've learned from experience that it's no faster to take shortcuts. If you take shortcuts by leaving something out, somebody will ask questions about the gap, and somebody else will think that you had some evil and underhanded reason for glossing over whatever was cut. <laughs> so, I think it's better to be thorough. Though, to be honest, we're still not being as thorough as we could be. Not yet. Our second question also comes from the comments to episode 3. Just to refresh your memory, that episode concerned two aliens, Elf and Betty, on a distant planet. Reginald Selkirk remarked, quote, How ironic. A post entitled Morality in the Real World is a science fiction piece about two people on a fictional planet. Alonzo, you and I talked about this before recording the episode. That's right. Let me tell you a bit of a story which ties into my thinking on this issue. When I first started college, I was a physics major. I wanted to be an astronomer. My very first physics class was in mechanics, and I remember the teacher giving us all sorts of lectures and problems to solve where we were told to assume massless strings and frictionless surfaces and the like. Mm -hmm. We were studying physics in the real world, but to get a handle on the concepts we'd be using, we assumed a simplified world where a string has no mass and surfaces have no friction. Mm -hmm. That's what we did in episode three. We simplified our world by assuming one person with one desire. And then we added one other person with one other desire. Besides, the principle that we illustrated in that episode is a fact about the real world. Desires provide people with reasons to mold the desires of others. 
we used Alf and Betty as a way of focusing attention on that one principle, but that principle is something that is true in the real world. Now, Alonzo, here's a question from Polymeron. Polymeron. I don't know. Anyway, quote, One underlying assumption you explicitly make is that by praising someone for an action, you can cultivate in them a desire for that action that is independent of further praise. Now, that may be true, but I think an assumption this serious carries a big citation-needed mark over it. End quote. Well, I have to admit I thought it was self-evident. Somebody who performs an action for the sake of a reward, such as parental praise or attention, soon comes to value that action for its own sake. Soon we'll be looking at the propositions of desirism in more detail, and I'll keep in mind to provide those citations. Okay, Luke, the next question's for you, I believe. There was a bit of a discussion attached to the God is not the ground for morality episode, where people seemed to think that we had argued divine command theory can't be true because God doesn't exist. The accusation is that we're simply starting with the assumption of atheism. Yeah, well, actually, the argument doesn't assume that there is no God. It takes the form of a dilemma. Either God exists or God does not exist. And if God exists, we have all these problems with a God-based morality. And if God does not exist, then that's a serious problem for God-based morality. Besides, I'm not just assuming God's non-existence. I mean, this podcast is hosted on a website called Common Sense Atheism, where I have hundreds of posts explaining how we know that God doesn't exist. Our next question comes from Yer again. Yer wrote, quote, Sure, you can influence others' desires, but what about influencing other things to affect their behavior, like their beliefs and thought patterns? Unquote. Alonzo, what do you have to say about that? Well, I hope that Yer saw some of his question answered in episode 4. There we presented three ways of influencing Ebenezer Scrooge's behavior. In addition to the option of influencing desires, we looked at influencing Scrooge's beliefs, and also at influencing the environment by threatening to punish or promising to reward him. These all have their place. However, I'd argue that morality is specifically concerned with molding desires. Yeah, but we're not really talking about morality right now. So far, we're just focusing on the basic facts that desirism draws upon. And one of those basic facts is that reward and punishment, changing beliefs, and changing desires, those are three ways we have for molding the behavior of others. But one reader said that there's a fourth way for influencing behavior. Charles wrote, quote, I just wanted to mention that there's a fourth way that works for small children based on attachment parenting theory. The idea that children will do what their parents want or say because of an innate desire to please their parents. We don't use any praise, condemnation, rewards, or punishment. We do, however, spend a lot of time working on attachment, unquote. I think that's a great point. Attachment fits into the molding desires category, not by the use of praise and condemnation, but instead by using attachment. Alonzo and I focus a lot on praise and condemnation because that seems to be the subject matter of morality, but actually we usually talk about you know, social tools such as praise, condemnation, and so on. And the use of attachment is another social tool, so yeah, that's totally valid. Of course, there are other ways to mold desires too, such as drugs or perhaps some future neuroscientific tools that can remap our neuronal connections or something. But that's probably the subject matter of what we call medicine, not what we call morality. But yeah, attachment is another social tool that can be used to mold desires. 
Now, Alonzo, you wanted to address this next question. Steve made a comment to episode four that said, quote, It's more than obvious that this podcast is merely establishing some basic premises and setting itself up. Notice how the option of praise and condemnation is seen as the most effective, end quote. Yeah. If the impression we left is that praise and condemnation is the most effective in some absolute sense, then we left a false impression. Each of the three options we've mentioned, reward and punishment, changing beliefs, changing desires, is the most effective in its own area. One of the problems with praise and condemnation is that it's only effective in the long term and sometimes it's not effective at all. When that happens, then you need to consider one of the other two options. That's right. If you see some stranger dragging your child into his car, that's not the time to draw out praise and condemnation as your most effective option for stopping him. In those types of circumstances, I would recommend the first option. Find a way to threaten him. Call 911. Call the people with the guns. That's right. And when the armed Nazi soldiers come to your house looking for the Jews that used to live next door, option two might be your best option. You lie. I saw them get into their friend's car and drive off. I don't know where they went. Right. I think the armed Nazi soldier component is probably going to rule out the option of threatening them. And standing there and condemning the Nazi guards isn't likely to produce the best results for you or the neighbors that are now hiding in your attic. Moving along, the next question comes from Alonzo. <laughs> Hold on, that's cheating. Hey, it's our podcast. I can insert a question if I want to. <sighs> Fine, go ahead. Alonzo is concerned that some listeners probably think there's an unbridgeable gap between is and ought, and we should address that objection right away. Alonzo is concerned. Let me tell you, Alonzo is concerned about a lot of things. If I were to show you a list of all the things that Alonzo has worried about in recording this podcast, it would I be... I don't think that the list will answer the question. Well, can I show them the list anyway? It's pretty funny. No. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I mean, we don't want to talk about the is-ought gap before we get to that topic. So far, we're staying exclusively on the is side of the equation. For example, we claim that a desire gives an agent reason to mold the malleable desires of others in ways that contribute to the fulfillment of that desire. We also claim that there are three types of tools available for modifying Scrooge's behavior. We can use threats or rewards, we can change his beliefs, or we can change his desires. These things are facts. They're on the is side of the equation. Now, when we get to a point where we are leaving the realm of fact and entering the realm of value, then we can talk about the is-ought gap. The alleged is-ought gap. Yeah, the alleged is-ought gap. Or in other words, we will cross that bridge when we come to it. The next question is an audio question. Hello, my name is B.J. Marshall, and I'm calling from Baltimore, Maryland, with a question about Alf and Betty and their morality. I can see how Betty and Alf could effectively use praise and combination to promote desires that would lead toward their fulfillment, in this case, one desires to collect rocks while the other to scatter them. My question is this. What happens when the number of stakeholders one must consider increases to, say, the level of my neighborhood? Betty and Alf each had only one other person to consider when using praise and condemnation in order to promote good desires. How should I go about using praise and condemnation when attempting to promote good desires when lots of people are involved? Thank you for considering my question and producing a great podcast. There's two things to say. First, we haven't talked about Alf's and Betty's morality yet, only about what they have reason to do. We want to save the introduction of moral terms until later. Second, 
The question of how to handle multiple complex desires will certainly be important. We'll give some hints about how to answer that in the next few episodes. In episode 9 specifically, we're going to ask, what can we say when there is a whole bunch of Alfs and Bettys? Can they determine which desire to give the next person to come into their world? Alonzo, I have a question. Okay. What else are we going to talk about in the next few episodes? Well, we're going to talk about how we're not saying that desire fulfillment has any special kind of value. Mm -hmm. We're also going to talk about how to measure and compare desires. Then, we're going to lay down all the propositions of our theory to make it easier for anybody who wants to try to falsify desirism. And then we're going to go about defending all of those propositions. Whew. Talk about systematic. They don't even do that in professional philosophy papers and books. Well, maybe they should. Cool. Anything else? No, that's all. For now. Well, then that means we finished our first set. Our first five episodes. <sighs> yeah, we did. We need to celebrate. I think it is time to rock. Break the 90, 